Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. see you here on the last day of 2023 and we're grateful to be able to continue our reflections on the idea of Jesus Christ as the Son of Man and uh, we uh, want to wrap this up by not looking at a passage specifically that uses the word Son of Man but rather passages that tell us what we can expect in the future because Jesus became the Son of Man. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning, four passages of scripture and four things that we want to reflect on because Jesus Christ became a human being. And that's what the word son of man means. It means human being. And the idea that Jesus is a man, that God became man, is uh, permeated throughout scripture as a very significant foundational piece to our faith. I was just reading this week through the Gospel of John and came to the Easter story. And isn't it interesting that when Pilate presents Jesus to the Jews after they've demanded that he be crucified, that Pilate says to them, behold the man. So we want to take a look at, as we close 2023, what does Jesus bring because he became a man? And we don't know what 2024 is going to bring, do we? We sit here with uh, a knowledge of what happened in 2023. Have you ever gotten on a website like at the end of the year and like, who died in 2023? And it lists you all the famous people, right? And of course, millions of others. Uh, As we look into 2024, there's nobody predicting what's going to happen because nobody knows. It's all a guess. But as we look into the future as Christians, we do have some idea of what's happening. And I want this to grip your hearts as we end one year and begin another. So let's take a look, first of all, at this passage found for us in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5 as we look about four Christian truths about the future. First, the Bible says that there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, when we think about Jesus and we think about who he is, we must grapple with the fact that of all the beings in the universe, Jesus Christ is one of a kind. He is unique. And how is he unique? Jesus is 100% God, He's called the Logos in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. So we're introduced to Jesus as being eternal God, 100% God. And then through the miracle of the incarnation, through the virgin birth as Mary delivers Jesus to the world, Jesus through her, and her willingness to obey God takes on human flesh and becomes 100% human. 
Jesus is unique. There's nobody else who's 100% God and 100% man. Here's what we mean by that. This is often called by theologians the hypostatic union. It means that God in Jesus Christ assumed humanity without forfeiting any of his deity. And that as God assuming humanity does understand humanity fully as a man without surrendering his deity and now Jesus Christ always being a human. It's not that Jesus is 50% God and 50% man. No, he's 100% God and 100% man. He is the monogenes, John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only monogenes. We translate it in our Bibles as begotten, but in the Greek language, uh, mono means one, genes means genus. You ever study biology and they talk to you about genus and species? You ever study that? He's a, he's a kind. Jesus is a one of a kind. There's nobody else in the universe like him. He is the only unique son of God. And because he's unique, he can function in an understanding of both what God is like and what God thinks. And he can also function as a human being understanding how human beings think and experiencing what human beings experience. So think about this for a moment. As God, he is often, Jesus is often called God when it talks about his creative work in the world, whether it's making you a new creature, whether it's making the creation to begin with, that part of Jesus, that God part of Jesus, often connected to the creation or the new creation. The mankind side of Jesus often connects Jesus to the experiences that you and I share as human beings. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. You see, there's a God in heaven who made you, who understands now what it's like. Some people say, well, how is it fair that God puts us in this world and then we suffer and we die? Right? Well, God wanted to know everything of what it was to be a human. And Jesus Christ knew everything there was to be a human during his earthly life except sin. And yet, on the cross, the Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin. He was treated as the sinner. So Jesus Christ as a man understands humanity, suffering, betrayal, anger, hurt, sin on the cross as he's treated as a sinner, death, and here's the great part, the first to be resurrected from the dead, right? So here's this person, this unique person, Jesus, it's why we have his name up here on the, on the stage. It's why we proclaim him as the only way to God. And here's what Paul says, the apostle in 1 Timothy 1. You can't get to God in any other way. There's no other way to get to God. Jesus Christ was the most narrow-minded man who ever walked on planet Earth. 
Do you hear Jesus saying that there's a lot of ways to get to God? He does not. He says, I am the way. No one gets to God except through me. So when Jesus proclaims his own self, he narrows all of the ways to God down to just one way. And you know, that can go against our human nature of, of wanting life to be fair and wanting God to be kind. And, and here's how Christians understand this. God did not have to be kind to anyone when mankind fell into sin. God chose to be kind by finding a way to deliver us from our sin. See, God doesn't owe sinful people anything. He's a sovereign God, a holy God, a glorious God, a powerful God, and his word says that he is worshipped by the angels and feared by the devils. And so you and I who live in this human world, which wants to scale down the glory of God, wants to make many ways to God, and wants to make God the big old grandfather who just sits up there and pats you and says, it's okay that you messed up so bad. Hey, come on in, everybody gets to heaven. Even all the dogs are here. You ever read somebody's obituary, and they were a scoundrel? And everybody knew they were a scoundrel. And then when people talk about them, they say, well, he's looking down on us from heaven above. No, he's not. That's not what God's word says. God's word says what? There's one way to God, and you have to come to him through Christ. And here it says he's the only one who can understand what it is to be a man and understand what it is to be a God. He is fully God, fully man. And therefore, he is the only one who can mediate between the two sides, between the holy God and the sinful humanity. He's unique. And because he's unique, he can save. No one else can save because no one else understands what it is to be a holy God who's offended by my sin. And no one else can understand what it feels like to be a human being who faces the frailty of fallenness in our life. So he's unique. And because he's unique, all of the promises about the future can take place. So right now, as Paul writes this back 2,000 years ago, he's writing about something that's brand new. Jesus Christ, the mediator. That's why when you come to him, and confess your sins. He knows what you've experienced. He who knew no sin became sin. He knows what it is to have God turn his back on him because as a sinful, being treated sinfully at the cross, God turned his back on Jesus. If God can turn his back on his own son because of sin, how will God treat our sin if we do not have a Savior to remove our sin. And who is it that can remove our sin? Jesus Christ alone. 
So we come to the mediator. He's, you know what a mediator does. A mediator brokers peace between two sides. That's what a mediator does. You have this opinion, and you have this opinion, and somehow we've got to figure out how to make an agreement here so that your two opinions can reside in harmony. And that's what Jesus does. He allows for you to be harmonized in your relationship with God. Now, here's what I know that Jesus says about this. He says that he is a stumbling block. You know what a stumbling block is? Uh, when something is in your path, and you don't see it, and you trip over it, and it causes you pain. The Bible says that Jesus is a stumbling block for some people. In other words, I don't think for a moment when I preach about this, that everybody in here is going to like it. In fact, I think probably some of you really dislike it. That's because Jesus said this would happen. When Jesus speaks and he says, I'm the only way, that's pretty harsh. And it makes you think about, is he the only way? And I also want you to think about this. In order to come to Jesus, you have to admit you need him. And who wants to admit that they're a sinner, that they've made mistakes, and that God will punish them because of it? It's hard, right? I'd rather try to work hard, try to have my good works outdo my bad works, and then be able to present myself before God and say, see, I wasn't so bad. And yet God says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've fallen short, but Jesus hasn't. And because he hasn't, he can mediate peace between God and me by offering himself as the peace. Here's the second thing Jesus does. In Ephesians 1, 8 through 10, we're, we're told that with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, the Bible clearly has a worldview, and this is what you have to decide. What will your, what will your worldview be? A worldview is how you put all the pieces of life to make sense of it. Every one of us here has a worldview. All of us understand the world works in a certain way. For those of us who have the Bible, and we believe it's the authority of God and the Word of God and the, and the will of God revealed to us, we have a certain worldview. And that worldview from the Bible says this, that there are two dimensions to life. There's the dimension you can see, that's called the earth. And there's the dimension you cannot see. That's called the heavenly. So for the Bible, the Bible says God is a spirit. He dwells in a spiritual realm. But God also created a physical universe, which you and I live in. And in both the spiritual universe, what the Bible calls heavenlies, and in the earthly universe, which the Bible calls earthly, in both of those universes, because sin entered through rebellion, both universes are out of order. 
In the spiritual realm, there's a great spiritual battle between God, his angels, and the forces of darkness. And in the earthly world, there's a huge spiritual battle between the forces of darkness and the sinful mankind that exists here. So that man raises their fist against God in a disorderly way and in a rebellious way. Remember uh, when January 6th happened and everybody's debating on whether it's an insurrection or whether it's something else? And remember all the attention that was given to that? And our Constitution says you can't have that. And so they argue, was it or wasn't it? And I'm not smart enough to figure it out. But here's what I do know. That there's an insurrection against God. And against his rule in both realms. And the Bible says here in Ephesians 1 that Jesus Christ, who existed eternally in the spiritual realm, entered into the earthly realm, and as both man and God, became the only one who could bring order to both realms. Look what it says there in Ephesians 1. That unity would be brought to all things in both realms. How? Through whom? And under whom? Under Jesus Christ. Part of Jesus becoming a man was so that he could bring order to both spheres. Representing God's armies in the spiritual realm who will have victory over Satan and his forces. And representing God's will in the earthly realm that the kingdom of God that exists in the spiritual realm could eventually invade the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do you think the Lord's Prayer is teaching you? It's teaching you that there are two realms and that in Jesus, he came to bring all of those things under the dominion of God. So Jesus unites. He's not only unique, he also unites. Thirdly, we read this in Colossians 3. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. <clears throat> Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. All right, so we have two spheres. Jesus left heaven and he became a human being, and he entered the earthly sphere, right? And because of what he did at the cross, and because of your faith in what he did at the cross, because you've accepted him and received him as your savior, God, in the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm where God dwells, has written your name in the book of life, has given you the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and has given you all of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. You are so connected to Jesus Christ in the mind of God that everything that belongs to Jesus in the heavenly realms also belongs to you. Isn't that awesome? Now... That has not yet happened in the earthly realm, has it? It has not yet happened in the earthly realm. But Christians believe what? That Jesus, who was taken up into heaven in the presence of the disciples, 
that angels showed up from the spiritual realm when that happened. And Jesus went from the earthly realm back to the heavenly realm in his ascension, where he's now seated at the right hand of God. The angels show up from the spiritual realm. When Jesus comes, angels say, hey, somebody just entered your earthly realm. And when Jesus leaves, the angels show up and say, hey, somebody just left your earthly realm, and he's coming back again just like you see him leave. So what does the Bible teach us? The day is coming when Jesus will return, and return in exactly the same way in which he was taken up originally. And the Bible says he will appear in the earthly realm. And when he appears, he will unfold the glory of God's realms. So in 2024, this might be the year that Jesus Christ comes back in his glory. But I want you to see something there on, this, on the screen. Can you look at it with me for a moment? When Jesus Christ comes in all of his glory, what does it say about you? You will also appear with him in glory. You know, all of this stuff that the Bible says is true about us in the spiritual realm that we haven't yet experienced experientially, when Jesus Christ returns, all of that stuff that God says about you, all of that stuff is going to be re revealed in totality and in glory, and you will be changed. You're not going to live in this dark world forever. That's why God tells you to set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. How much time do we spend with things of the earth? Because it's the things we see. And yet the Bible says if you're going to please God, you've got to walk by faith and believe in the things you can't see. Why do you look for this Jesus? This same Jesus. This same Jesus will return in like manner. You see him he leaves, you don't see him, and now we walk by faith, not by sight, right? But the day is coming, the Bible says, when you will see Jesus face to face, eyeball to eyeball, in all of his glory. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that when he comes, they will marvel at his glory. I guess the Marvel Universe is a thing, right? Uh, somebody said it's a dying thing. I don't know much about the DC or the Marvel universes. I'm not into that much, but I know it's a thing. And, uh, you know, you marvel because of this great superhero. When Jesus comes back, the world will marvel at his glory. And so will you, because you'll no longer be walking by faith, but you'll be walking by sight, right? And the Bible says that we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. I know, think about this now. Just think about this. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and the Bible promises, so will you. Jesus Christ had the ability to show up in the middle of a room, and the Bible says your body's going to be just like his. Jesus Christ said, I'm hungry, give me something to eat, so you know when you get to the new heaven and the new earth, guess what you're going to be doing? You're going to be eating. Isn't that good news for those of us who like to eat? Also, for those of us who struggle with the sin of eating. Um, but whatever. <clears throat> Here's the truth. You're going to be like Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn 
among many brothers and sisters. So when the Bible says fix your eyes on Jesus, it wants you to think about all that he's done and all that will be because he unfolds the glory of God when he appears. And that's coming, and it's only coming because he was obedient as a man to do the will of God. Finally, Revelation 21, 1 through 3 says, he unveils the glory of God. Some of us uh, got married in a church, and uh, the bride walking down the aisle, my beautiful bride walking down the aisle, and a veil, and that moment comes when you unveil her face. Now, you know, it's a quaint tradition, right? But it's a tradition that was built out of the, the ancient traditions when they hid the, the, the girl you were going to marry had her face hidden from you until the day you got married. You remember Jacob? Remember Jacob had two wives? And why did he end up with two wives? Because he thought he was marrying the one, and he only ended up realizing that he was marrying the other because she kept her face veiled. Right? And the guy's like, I got tricked. I ended up marrying this, this guy's other daughter. And, you know, it's, there's... What's the imagery to depict? That the beauty and the glory of the bride is revealed in that moment when the union is brought together to become one. And so at the end of the Bible, there's a wedding story. And by the way, the reason, if you're in a relationship, the reason you get married, if you're a Christian and not live together, is because your marriage is a reflection of what God says the love of Jesus Christ is like for you. And it points you towards the day when you, the person who was won by Jesus Christ and his love, will look into his eyes and you will become one with the eternal God. And that sacrificial love of Christ that purchased you as his own child and brought you into the family of God, this love is incomparable and uncomparable. And the Bible tells us that marriages are supposed to be a reflection of that kind of love. Therefore, the reason Christians don't live together before they get married is because of the symbolism that marriage presents as it relates to the love of Christ for us. There's no other reason to get married in a church or to refrain from sexual relations when you love somebody and care for somebody unless you have a higher understanding of what marriage represents. Hey, if all marriage is is two people like the way they look and they get together and they hook up, if that's all it is, yeah, why would you get married, especially when the divorce courts show you that half of all marriages end that way? But if you're a Christian, you get married as a covenant reflection of how you are committed to this other person in covenant love 
like Jesus Christ is committed to you in covenant love because the day is coming when the Bible says, blessed are everyone who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, if you're here living apart from marriage and you're in a relationship with somebody else and you're sleeping together, I want you to understand that a true Christian doesn't do that. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've compromised in this area, you need to repent from it, you need to get married, and you need to make this a living representation of what covenant love looks like. That's what God would want for your life. So, boy, Pastor Tim, you're very unpopular today. (laughs) I get that I represent an old-time view I get that. I understand that. But God in his word says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And listen, I don't blame young people or old people if they don't have an understanding of what marriage represents for living together. Humanly speaking, if half of all marriages end in divorce, why would you want to make that commitment and risk that it might not work out? All the pain that comes with it. I get that. But the reason you do it is because it is a symbol of the love of God for us in Christ. Here's what it says in Revelations 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you remember at the beginning of the Bible, most of us are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. And before Adam and Eve fell into sin and disobedience, the Bible says that in the garden they had fellowship with God. God walked with them, God talked with them, God spoke with them. They loved him and they could see him and they fellowshiped with him. And this is the next to last chapter of the Bible here. Beginning in chapter 19 to the end of Revelation, we have this picture. First, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and now this picture of the new heaven and the new earth, which also is, is imaged through the metaphor of a marriage. And it says that at the end, what Jesus brings is what? The reconciliation of humankind with God Almighty so that in eternity... What was initially planned for the Garden of Eden and all of the earth can finally be redeemed and God's original intention restored, this time with a new humanity, a new humanity that is founded on the person who obeyed God in every facet and who brings you to himself, who makes you one with himself and builds in you the kind of person God wants you to be so that you can dwell with God for all of eternity. These are the promises of God made possible to us in Jesus Christ. And if you're new in the faith or you're considering the faith, I don't expect you to understand all of the stuff that I talked about today. 
because there's a lot of stuff that you arrive at from lots of study of the Bible. But there's enough here that's simple enough for anybody to accept, which is Jesus's self-proclamation that he is the only way to God. And the Bible's clear teaching that he is fully God and fully man, and that only he, because of it, can actually rescue you from the state of lostness, sinfulness, and confusion that your life is in. So God invites you to come to himself, and I do too. I invite you to come to Jesus. You may not understand everything that was spoken today, but here's what you can understand. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He conquered death for you. And he promises eternal life for you. If you will just but acknowledge his name, if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to enter a new year knowing that even though you don't know everything that's going to happen, you know that you can trust him with your life and future because you have one. No more wandering through life, wondering what life is about or what happens when this life ends. Jesus says, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe? I invite you to place your faith in Christ as I close in prayer. <clears throat> Jesus, we end 2023 this day. And these human, these human calendars that we've made uh, are for those of us who live in time and space. You, dear God, you are spirit. You do not live in time and space. You are God, and we must worship you in spirit and in truth. But Lord Jesus, you are the second person of the Godhead, and you did enter into time and space. And the whole calendar is built around you. The years before you were born and the years since you were born. So Lord God, Lord Jesus, because we too live in time and space and because you've entered our world and because you've made yourself a sacrifice and present yourself to us as our Savior, we come to you humbly now, Lord Jesus, and ask that you would open our eyes to your truth and, oh God, if there's anyone here, that they might cry out the name of Jesus, that the lights would come on in their life, that they would no longer be lost and groping in the darkness, that they would have purpose and meaning in a world that is difficult and desperate to know that we have hope eternal in the resurrected Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.